1: This podcast is sponsored by Clean Seas Group. Through innovation and engagement of people, businesses, and governments, they aim to eradicate microplastic pollution from all angles. The goal is to spread awareness so that people can make informed choices and be part of the solution. For more information, please visit cleanseasgroup.com. Author and chef Jack Stein has a passion for food and creativity. Having grown up in the heart of Cornwall, Jack's true passion lay in cooking. His career led him to work across restaurants in Paris and Australia before returning to the Southwest, where he took over the Rickstein restaurants and later took on a key role with Rickstein Cookery School. In addition to working as a chef director across the restaurants, Jack also hosts the Rock oyster Festival and is a familiar face on TV. joining me today Jack. How
0: are you doing? I'm good, thank you very much. How are you?
1: I'm I'm very uh, I'm very well thanks. I'm stumbling over my words as always. So I have to ask you, uh my podcast is for naughty bites. What's your guilty pleasure?
0: Well um it's it's funny because a lot of I mean it's quite a good question for chefs because we all have we all do have a few. Um for me uh I quite like um well I like I really like processed cheese strings um it's a bit bizarre um i remember so when i was traveling in mexico i remember i traveled through america when i was like 25 26 and then i went down through central america and in 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 america when i was traveling around sort of texas and stuff we would just be driving a lot and cheese strings were like quite an easy thing to just have and dip in like different hot sauces so you'd be in like texas and new mexico and all the different hot sauces i was like testing them but using the cheese string as a kind of um, you know like a bit of bread sort of thing yeah, yeah. Um, and then I got down to Oaxaca and Oaxaca has a special cheese which is like this crazy like l- beautiful mozzarella like kind of salty cheese string that's bound up in this big ball um, and it's like oh, still to this day I think it's some of my favourite cheese um, and I just remember I uh, went to a hostel there in, in Oaxaca and my partner at the time she'd gone off to see some ruins I stayed behind and I ate like a kilo of it in one night and when they came back the next day, they said to the um, they said to the lady in the, uh, one of the girls in the hostel who just turned up, said, "Oh, what's how's the hostel sort of thing?" And um, and, and the lady said, "Yeah, it's all right, but there's a there's an English bloke who I think ate like a kilo of cheese last night." And my girlfriend at the time said, "Oh, yeah, I know who that is, I know exactly who that is." <laughs> um, so that so that I like um, yeah, cheese strings and also cheese strings, hot sauce and then for dessert um fab lollies you know which are like the oh, little man. like yeah. rocket like kind of you know, knob like they're three layered like british lollies they're um yeah they're delicious um and i ate 32 of them once after service when i was really hot
1: this is like a Weetabix challenge like who can eat all the Weetabix in that one packet
0: it was like 24 <laughs> <laughs> yeah but well, this uh, the, it's a 36 so that's that's four boxes yeah four boxes oh, of six and it was um yeah, it was quite good. Uh, my kids enjoyed like playing with the um, sticks afterwards, so. oh,
1: though. <laughs> you could have made a bad peach. <laughs> so I, I was gonna ask, like, you know, everyone always talks about their food memory with their grandparents. Your father is Rick Stein, but did your grandparents have any inspiration? You know, provide them with inspiration to cook.
0: Yeah. So my on my mum's side my grandparents they're from they're from are yorkshire from yorkshire so there's a lot of um i remember yorkshire puddings i mean I, I, to this day to be honest i can't really make yorkshire pudding even i i, I probably could but i ever i seem to do it i seem to just never get it right and people just make them and people always give me recipes and i, I can never get them but i think it's i can never get them as good as my grand would make them then my dad's mum she was she was a great cook and we used to spend a lot we spend christmas with her and she would do like some really so it's because our family has german heritage so there would be a lot of kind of things like braised cabbages um you know hams like all that kind of all kind of christmasy stuff but definitely like didn't necessarily sit there and learn a lot from them but like would definitely have really strong memories of eating and i think the most important thing from both sides of the family was just sitting down and eating like eating together you know like as opposed to you know like grabbing a bite to eat and sort of sitting in front of the tv and stuff like that and that's kind of something that i take into my own with my own kids as well we we just sit down and eat together it's really important
1: no definitely i i I can agree to that you know and so you mentioned before that you've you've traveled a lot and Mm. so you know doing the research on uh, your book world order plate what new food, uh, food trends and experience influence your exploration of world or the world of food? And, you know, when it comes to planning your next adventure, do you follow your belly or do you follow your nose?
0: <laughs> Definitely follow my belly. Yeah, I think, um, I've been lucky enough to be traveling with food. Since I can remember, you know, mum and dad would be looking for inspiration for the restaurants when we were very young. So spent a lot of time in France early, you know, in the early 80s when we were really small. And then as we got a bit older and were able to travel more long distance, we'd spend time in Asia and India and a lot, actually quite a lot of time in India. um, You know, and still, you know, I don't think you could really do Indian food justice if you lived there for five lifetimes. It's such an amazing food culture. But, you know, and then a lot of kind of South Asia australia um and so sort of that was our sort of we do that every winter because the restaurant would close mm. in the winter for you know, four or five months because unlike now where Cornwall was a you know an all year round tourist destination we would be closed because no one, there just wouldn't be anyone here you know so yeah. and it was good so i it's all it's all it's sort of ingrained into me to use food as a as a tool to travel with and i think it's a really nice way of of seeing a country because everyone eats And I found myself in places like, you know, Solomon Islands out near Papua New Guinea with no real way of communicating with people, but going fishing for tuna and showing them how we make, you know, how we'd make certain dishes with tuna in in the UK. Obviously, they'd be mostly Japanese based dishes, but, you know, like tuna sashimi or tuna guacamole with lemongrass and that. And, you know, you can you can sort of um, if you can cook, it's one of those skills. I think you you can find yourself. In places that your average tourist doesn't necessarily get to, because I think you'll you'll naturally a eat street food, which gets you talking to people that are that are locals that are you know like the local tuk tuk drivers or the local taxi drivers or these kind of people that really open open can open doors in tourism. And the worst thing is sometimes taxi drivers can just take you to tourist traps. But when they know that you understand food, they want to show off um, mm-hmm. things like you know send, you know if you go to Southeast Asia and stuff and you ask. You know, taxi drivers will often be a really good source of, of, you know, if you ask where they're from, I think the best way to find out about food is to find out where somebody's from. You know, so even if you're an Uber driver, an Uber in London, you say, Oh, where are you from? And somebody will say, You know, I don't know, Eritrea, Somalia, something like that. And then you start asking them about the dishes that remind them of home. And then they'll start saying, oh, there's a place in London where you can get like a similar thing to what we'd eat at home or a curried goat, whatever it might be. And you find these like little things even in your own town. So I think it's a really nice way of travelling. So I always use food as a kind of, you know, even if I'm going back to the same places, I'll always try and find something new.
1: So I think it's like food in general is like a universal language. Even if you don't have the speaking language, you can communicate tremendously and widely through cooking yeah, and and everyone loves to eat. Well, I hope everyone loves to eat, but you know, I think it's a good way of exploring culture.
0: Yeah, food and food and haircuts. I think if you can, <laughs> if you can cut hair and you can cook, you can pretty much go anywhere in the world and be like, you find yourself like a you know sort of you know it's, they're both good transferable skills that go across cultures. You know, that's what I think.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, I've done that in Thailand. Like, I had a mess <laughs> of hair from the humidity, and I had to get it cut because it looked like. A ball of string it just literally went horrendous got it cut but it went too short so I looked like a boy in my teenage years for like a couple of months (laughs) it was really bad it was really bad but yeah it does connect you to the culture (laughs) so when you're whether you're cooking at the restaurant or on television you're always I've seen that you've focused a little bit on you know local southwest food with a bit of an Asian twist what makes Europe and Asia so appealing to you?
0: I think it's. I think it's more that I, I guess it's. It's you know one of the things I always sort of used as a kind of reason for writing the book, and also what I do a lot in food. And I, this is wasn't my idea. This is something that's happened in London for the last sort of fifteen years, from like the whole pop up scene of like you know the early two thousands, and that was like kind of when mm-hmm. I was when I was really engaged in um, engaged in kind of food as a, as a, you know, like trying different things and cooking with lots of different people in weird spaces all around London, was it, it was like people were just saying, you know what, Britain's kind of food culture has been kind of reborn by people like my old man and, you know, Jamie Oliver and all these people. But and like, it's really great that we've got all these great dishes and that, but actually what they've managed to do is create a market for really good quality produce, like, you know, mm-hmm. fruit, veg, meat, fish, which was in danger of dying out in the in the 90s because it was just people weren't buying from mm. farmers markets and butchers and fish counters were closing and this that and the other and you didn't have all these kind of small farmers and you know all this sort of stuff that's now tied to restaurants and i think what we all discovered at the same time you know people like um neil rankin gizzy Erskine, and james lowe from lyle see all these people were they were obsessed with they'd all a lot of them were trained in copenhagen and and, and been shown like how you can use the product of a country to really, like, make really amazing food. And I think what we'd we'd all sort of realise is that there's amazing produce in mm. Cornwall, you know, where I'm from. So everyone would phone me up and say, we're coming to Cornwall next week. So I got to meet all these chefs that I maybe wouldn't have met otherwise, and then got to do loads of pop-ups with them in London and sort of taking produce up there with a few other people, like fishermen and farmers from down here, and just enjoying the kind of, the limelight of, Cornwall was being you know this kind of what it's become is this amazing cult uh, you know food centre for, for for produce and for chefs. And then when I started to think well you know Pit Q was a um, a restaurant if you ever went in Newburgh Street it was like American barbecue food done by Tom Allen who's now at Head Farm in, in in Cornwall. And he was an ama- he was the first person to show me how you could just take amazing Cornish pigs you know whatever mm. pigs were being grown down there at the warren's butchers our butchers and then turn them into like american barbecue food which and then having travelled around america i love american barbecue it's, it's so interesting so varied um and but it was using this like when you go to america and you have american barbecue often it's grain-fed beef and it's all kind of like, you know you, you you kind of question where the you know the the provenance of some of the meat but because it's all massive you know it's it's sort of supersized And when it was being done with this Cornish kind of small breed, you know, little tiny Dexter cows and red ruby cows or Mangalitsa pigs and all this kind of stuff, you realise that it's actually what you really should do, is, or what you can do is take um, inspiration from places you've visited that you really like, whether it's Asia or America or wherever, but then use the, the, the raw ingredients from where you're from, so the meat, the dairy and things like that. And where you can't, say you can't get hold of green papaya because you have to fly it in basically. You mean use Granny Smith's apples, and then where you've got, you know, then you've got like chicken, you know, you know, making a chicken or pork dish, mm. but you're using the great produce that we've got here. So that was kind of the inspiration. So it, it's sort of basically just saying you don't necessarily have to make British food with British ingredients. You can make food that's inspired by the world, but just make sure you're buying everything from your local farmer's market or butcher or you know, do you see what I mean? Right. Mm. And and in some ways, you you know, some of the, you know. You know, been to Asia a lot of times, and some of the chicken dishes you get there are some of the nicest chicken dishes in the world. But the chickens themselves are quite—they're like jungle chickens. They're really scrawny, and you know, they're kind of tough. And then if you get a nice kind of like free-range chicken, and you make like you know, soto ayam or something like from Bali, or you know, lab or something from northern Thailand, you just start to like see—it's it. This opens up just like different worlds. And now there's lots of restaurants in all the cities that do this. You know, place like somsar and you know and hoppers and all these kind of stuff they're using cornish produce but just doing international stuff with it so it's kind of a movement i suppose of just you know like fusion in the 90s was kind of a bit of a bad word but actually now it's i think it's kind of matured and become like a kind of more of a sensible way to look at, at you know using great british products Yeah,
1: no, definitely because i think as well now the word fusion or well, the term fusion is also a good way of introducing other cuisines that you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily get to you know enjoy, such as Peruvian Japanese. So a lot of people don't understand Peruvian food, but mm. the fusion of Japanese food with it makes it more appealing and a slow introduction into people enjoying yeah. other. And
0: Peruvian I think the, I think in the early days of fusion, it was more like just people just going, let's get like two things and just put them together and it was more of an experimentation i think people it was used as a pejorative as well people would just take would, would take the mickey out of it because it was kind of didn't really know what it's doing but i think as it's matured and people have realised that it, it's more of a fusion between the ingredients of where you live and yeah. the and the and the and the techniques or the things that you've seen and you know in all my cooking now if i'm making a sunday roast at home like the sunday roast gravy will have stuff from all over the world in it. it's always got some sort of like you know asian kind of umami flavor you know fish sauce or mm-hmm. soy sauce or it might have even a veggie mite or marmite it might have you know fermented black vinegar from china the red vinegar from china for acidity or you know all these different things and and this is all just like been you know to eat my roast dinner you'd be like it's the most quintessentially british thing you've ever seen and but it just tastes delicious but it's because it's got these like things in the background that no one knows about That's that mm. are all from all the travels around the world so i think you know i think it's kind of it's just a, like i say a mature a maturation of the word fusion and just the fact that you know you, but then you do then i think you do then slightly get into a bit of trouble when you start to pretend that you're being authentic um, and i think there there's been this kind of debate about cultural appropriation i think which you've got to be be mindful of because i would never pretend to make a southeast asian food like the way the, in, in in any traditional way, and and that's why I'm very I'm very very specific about saying that this is inspiration. It's not like I'm not pretending to know how to make you know the best yeah. lab in the world. I just know that I love larb and I like it with you know free range pork from Cornwall, and that's and you know I've got all the spice you know lab prick spices from from the north of Thailand, and I'll just you know use what I've got around me. No, oh, oh. yeah, then um, you know when
1: we think about. Our relationship with food, you know, growing, you know, going to Asia, visiting family, it was a whole thing of you know, you respect food, you have food together, and you sat around a table or on the floor. How do you, you know, and also as well, everything was from the local village, you know, the fish was down a, a minute down the road, or you know, you go to the local butcher. However, the butcher, like you said, we have scrawny chicken curry. And um, as a kid, I was not a fan of it. I'd rather be have fish or vegetables. Hopefully it's changed, but you know how do you find people's relationships changed in terms of food culture in the uk
0: i think so i think we're in danger of losing our food culture at one point in the sort of 80s you know um everything was french uh and, and it was basically seen that we you know we couldn't we couldn't really have a, a food culture and then we've slightly reinvented our food culture and so that puts us in a weird situation so a country like say Thailand or Italy have such a long culture of food and and like a continuity from great grandparents to grandparents to parents to children that then goes on and gets passed down whereas for us we sort of had a almost a break and like you know we you might have heard you know like I say I can think of a couple of dishes my grandma made but it was never like we were watching her cook and she was teaching us the dishes like you'd get with nonas and 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 parents and you know my wife's sicilian and like the way that they pass down their information is is much more kind of orchestrated and organized but so i think the but i think the british food culture has become a bit of a magpie culture because it didn't really it sort of could reinvent itself a little bit so what you're seeing is lots of people are, excuse me are really interested in food but it's not food doesn't serve this kind of i suppose utilitarian purpose that it does in longer food cultures mm-hmm. you know you look at um my wife's nonna and the way that she produces food it's it's a long process because that's what how it's like a you fill your day with making things and you know it's an, it's a different culture than that we've got now which is much more kind of like instant food to, uh, in the internet and all that sharing of information so we've become a, the brits are really into food we sell lots of cookbooks it's it's you know it's well known we sell more cookbooks. it's a bit like how the brits have got the most um Convertible cars in Europe, you know, and it, it's typical of the Brits we buy more cookbooks than everyone. But whether or not we actually cook as much as other cultures do, I'm not sure. But I do think yeah. that we're fascinated by watching food, food TV, food, and we and also equipment and and ingredients and having everything right. But I still think that we've probably got a way to go to have like what you would say is food culture that we we're going to be passing on for generations and generations again like we we obviously used to but it just we lost it a bit so we're in a kind of a bit of a juncture. i'd say a bit of a kind of junk but fork in the road but there's definitely a massive appetite for it but i just think that i think if if you were french or italian looking at us from outside you might say you know they're just basically having a bit of a reset at the moment
1: yeah no, i think i think you know places in europe such as you know france or italy are really have well advertised themselves in terms of food origin and regional food, because you'll go to Bologna for Tortellini or Barolo wine. you'll go to Torino. So you have all these places where they really define themselves. And when you think of the UK, you're right, I think we're still a bit behind, but I think the southwest and the southeast have really defined that they are defining themselves. A lot of people from Europe go to Cornwall because I'm like, Oh, I've heard the seafood is really good, or I've heard the cheese is really good. But you know, coming from Leicester, we're famous for melton roberry pork pies and for you know Delicious. Cheddar. oh yeah. <laughs> I always go whenever I go back, I do stuff my face. <laughs> so, but you know, a lot of people do think don't yeah.
0: that I, mean, I think you're right, and I think it's but I think that's because Places, yeah, like, the we, you'd see we have lots of cookery schools in northern, you know, in northern Italy, in the Basque country. You have lots of people there, food tourism, you know, people going and having a whole, you know, farm-to-fork kind of experience with wine and all that sort of stuff. So this is stuff that's coming in now, which is we're starting to see it in Cornwall because, like you say, we've got the name. and Because I think most of the Europeans can understand in some way that because we sort of stick out into the Atlantic a bit like, galicia does and they know that great fish comes from the atlantic great seafood comes from the atlantic so i can see like it's starting to definitely have 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 like appeal to and but obviously we're having political differences with with the, the eu at the moment which is probably really um going to put put that back a load of years which is a real shame because i think it's a you know you know to have a love you know i've got this image of a you know food tour in cornwall you know and this old Cornish boy, you know, because when I, I went and did the stage down to Michel Brass, I remember I got picked up by his um, his um, gardener who was this, you know, really broad French spoken kind of farmer, you know, didn't speak a lot of English at all and my French is all right but I got by but I remember being in the car with him and it was such an experience that like, you know, and I'm thinking if somebody comes to Cornwall and I could like have one of my friend's farmers or maybe the dad or something who's got these amazing stories, this great accent, really good looking kind of, you know, salt of the earth kind of fellow and just him in the bus with you and saying, this used to be so-and-so's land and this is, you know, go for a pub lunch and then go to the vineyards, get drunk and, you know, and the next day cook a load of food at the cookery school. It would it would work. You you kind of got to see it as somebody else would see it. Um, but you're right, the South you know, Cornwall, they're reinventing themselves. And, and I guess places like Leicester have got the classics, but I guess a lot of the classic British dishes are kind of what people would say is a bit, I don't know, a bit kind of stodgy and all this sort of stuff. And I actually, I did a TV show where um, I took ten dishes, um, two, ten British dishes, um, and I got a food historian, Polly Russell from the British Library, and we did the history of the dish. And then we'd take the dish somewhere. So we'd take like steak, we took steak and kidney pudding to Singapore. Mm. We took like potted shrimp to Darwin. We went to Bangkok with um, pork buns and apple sauce. And we took all these dishes there. and We basically had this kitchen. We just gave all the food away for free on the street. Like, we're just asking what people thought of it with a local chef. And we kind of twisted the dish at the end just to sort of give it a bit of a local flavor. But um, but during that food history, there I mean, there's a lot of food history in, in the country, a lot. I mean, Heston Blumenthal is really big on it and amazing dishes. You can have at place like dinner, just unbelievable food. Like, it's, it takes inspiration from history. But I think most people would say the sort of historical British food is a bit kind of you know, I guess stodgy, <laughs> but like, I would no,
1: call it comforting.
0: Yeah, oh, comforting is a good <laughs> word. Yeah, that's a, a very, very diplomatic way of saying it. But but you know, but by the same token, you look at say pies, for example, as a, as you're talking about the you know the fantastic port pies from Mount Mowbray, and and then you look at Callum Franklin at the Pie Room in in Holborn, you see what he's doing, and he's amazing, like fish pies with this amazing artwork on them and they're beautiful and and you think you know you can reinvent this all this sort of stuff and I guess Cornwall you know we've got you know we've got pasties we've got stargazy pies we've got you know a load of stuff down here it's just about trying to repackage it and make it like exciting for people to come and visit.
1: But I think you know like I grew up on Lancashire because my mum was from Lancashire so you know Granted, I had Yorkshire puddings with my hot pot. But, you yeah. know, if you go to the north coast, for example, in Spain, a lot of people, because of the climate, it's very similar to Scotland, well, the north of the UK, a lot of people are brought up on stews and beans and, you know, hearty food. So it'd be really interesting for the UK somehow to, like, specify the origin of these sort of foods in the UK and target it to northern Spaniards, because they'll love it. I, yeah. I think we, we I- have good stews.
0: Yeah, I think yeah, I think you're right, and I think one thing that the um, Northern Spanish and the Basque, especially, people have done really, really well is to look at. So, if you look at the 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 Basque, the new cuisine of Basque, I can't remember the word in French, but the in Spanish sorry. but they 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 took all of their traditional, um, you know, grand grandmothers, grandfathers' dishes, and they basically have just turned them into something that's like culinary and special and they they've put them on a pedestal in these michelin restaurants and i think it's you know that's the kind of thing i think that that the 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 uk is starting to do you're seeing it at places like long Clume, and you're seeing it at these other you know really like these places up up in the north like sap Baines is doing, doing a great job of looking at these traditional kind of you know midlands and northern dishes because at the end of the day, there's dishes all over, like you say, Scotland, the, the cuisine of Scotland, the game, all that kind of stuff is yeah. so interesting. And when you see what's been done in Scandinavia, it's, you know, we've got a far better climate than they do over there, and they're able to 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 make, you know, some of the best restaurants in the world. So, yeah, it's I think it's, it's a challenge for chefs, but I think it's one that they'll enjoy over the next sort of decade or two, just like really kind of, and I'm really fascinated by archaeological uh, food, because I did a master's degree in archaeology, so I'm really fascinated about trying to find ways of you know how you know we look at preservation methods salting and brining and you know pickling yeah. and and then like clamping vegetables and burying stuff over winter and you know recently with the local farm we've been we've been clamping you know putting stuff to basically stopping it growing putting it in sand burying it over the yeah. winter and then digging it up in spring because in february march is a time where you've got nothing and nothing's yeah. in the ground nothing's growing and all you can do is overwinter stuff. So but then we've been finding ourselves having like these amazing beetroots in like in asparagus season, you know, and people are going, Well, yeah. oh, what are you doing serving beetroots? I'm like, well, actually, these are from last year that we've yeah. like this old technique of clamping them, putting them under the ground, but then, then you're able to eat something between March, February, and April when the asparagus comes out or all the peas come out, and all the rest of it. So yeah. I'm really I mean, there's a lot to go at, a lot of fascinating time in food, to be honest, to be a chef and to be down here in the southwest.
1: No, definitely. So, you know, although lockdown might have changed our habits, our love of food experience, a desire to explore the world has not changed. What dishes do you think encapsulate the love of eating and, you know, getting messy and getting your fingers all like rubbing with food?
0: Well, that's any good one. (laughs) (laughs) Any good one and um, i think like from like from like things like freedom airs like the french freedom airs which you know ser- like shellfish on ice often serve raw or very lightly cooked, you know, and oysters and all that kind of stuff. I think that's my first kind of, you know, get your hands in. And we do them at the restaurant, and they're like, you know, there's sort of this, you know, sort of like a metre-wide circle of just of just the best um, shellfish for me in the world, which comes from the North Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And that experience of just watching kids have their first one at the restaurant, and they are in there, and there's like things that are like snails, like whelks, and you've got like razor clams and mussels and scallops and all that kind of stuff. I just think it's a like there's something to be said to you know if you know people talk about instagram food all the time and sometimes that you go you know it's style over substance but if i see a picture of somebody with a massive freedom air and a glass of white wine i'm like you're doing it well definitely doing that well you're enjoying you're having a good day you know to be sat there just absolutely you know it's so fresh it's like you know and you know you do get a lot of restaurants that will kind of We'll tart it all up you know they might chop up the crab and stress it and they might do some little but i just like it with just mayonnaise and white and and, and and shallot vinegar and just you know a big glass of wine and just go for it so that's kind of my that's my ultimate like as you know as a as a person that's eaten eating that kind of food for a long time but then also things like singapore chili crab or white pepper crab or these really nice. any crab any crab dish where you just basically got a bib on is you know, it <laughs> it was a good look um uh, so yeah and then i just think yeah seafood's just there's something about it, and i know it's it's going to be related to the fact that seafood and shellfish was one of the most available foods to to like pre-agricultural humans you know but you know it was you know so there's something i think that that connects you to food quite well when you're like you know going at it with you know with your hands and cracking things with rocks and this and the other so we did a big clam bake for the BBC. So we'd be we buried a load of seafood under sand and tarpaulin and hot rocks and cooked it all oh, and did so it nice. with like and did it we did it like kind of American style with a load of Frank's hot sauce and this and the other. But it was something, you know, was, we were on a beach, like five hundred of us just eating it and you know, a bit of sand here and there, but you know, a lot of beer and it was it was good. So anything like that, I think.
1: Oh god, I'm so hungry. Like <laughs>
0: I'm
1: I'm a sucker for seafood and pie. So um if it's, <laughs> <up from there. laughs> it's one of the two things That's such bad week this um, so you know we talk about sustainability <laughs> you know you've partnered with some of the region's best suppliers how important is it for you to shop and support locally
0: yeah well i think it's i mean it's massively important especially you know <laughs> we use a wild product um and i think it's really important that you you know you preserve as much as you can only use what you need to and that you you understand it because you need to educate your your Mm -hmm. clients and your and your staff about it so obviously we have 32 day boats that fish for us so now day boats are your boats that just go out for one day they come back they don't they don't stay at sea for weeks on end but they there's also a place for longer like trawlers that that are trawling over certain grounds you know if you're trawling over a, a sandy ground for things like place and turbot you know the the damage you're doing to the, the seafloor is, is minimal. It's just when you're trawling around reefs and, like, you know, these inland areas, you've got to be really careful. And I think it's, it's a minefield because you've just got to keep, constantly keep um, updating your own knowledge. You know, you can't be expected to know everything that's happening out at sea. It's just not possible. So you have to trust your suppliers and your suppliers are the people that are dealing with the fishermen and everything on a daily basis. But also there's something to be said for... Um, sustainability of, of of human business as well in terms of fishing the fishing fleet in the southwest was being you know basically wound up you know there was mm-hmm. it was it was going to basically non-exist anymore and over the past sort of decade 15 years it's really kind of come back in, to a, not as big an extent as it was in the 60s but buy all these restaurants using the product and, and you'll be able to sell a lot more in the domestic market you are supporting a human population as well as a, a fish population then you've always got to be mindful of of making sure that there's a balance you know you don't want us to just turn on these if we went to our if, if we just listened to certain types of science on fish you know you'd basically go well we're just never going to use it because it's too it changes every every you know, year that everything's changing and it's so confusing for our customers why don't we just stop using it but then you've then you're putting a fishing fleet out of business and there's people in, in that supply chain who are you know who are reliant on that money coming in so i think you have to just be you have to, it's really tough and it, it's, it's spend probably most of my time these days is that de- is dealing with these issues as st- the sustainability and how you can sustain you know the you know the not just the tourist industry but also the supply chain that we use for our ingredients so yeah it's huge but i think it's very easy to just it's in the same way it's very easy to say a plastic straw is basically, if you stop using plastic straws, you'll stop at all kind of marine pollutants. It's not going to happen like that. But you have to start somewhere and you have to mm-hmm. have a balanced view um, and you have to listen to the fishermen. The fishermen are out there catching the fish, but also listen to the science. But obviously since since Brexit, it's been quite difficult because the science was mainly in Europe. And it, mm-hmm. it's we're not seeing the same level of interaction with government bodies as we did before brexit it's just the truth they just they just don't seem to be either as interested or they'd have the money to do it but before you know we had a really good idea of the stocks and everything like that and since brexit and covid obviously has a factor but it's been a bit of a kind of sort of just figure it out for yourself so it's been quite difficult
1: yeah i'm, I'm hoping it changes because you know I, I was talking to a lawyer that's a professor at De Montfort University and he works in food policy and he's like the middle guy between slow food and in the UK and I think a lot of policy agreements when set well there's loads of grey areas I'm hoping once time continues that should be established which is you know in terms of funding or just information that's readily available in Europe or
0: passed back on to the UK. Which, yeah, think, I mean, I think, I th- you know, I don't want to get into politics too much, but I do think it's going to be a question of you have to sort of go and find it. You know, you yeah. have to almost be, which is a shame because before it was given to us as a kind of part of a, a partnership with Europe. and now I, I'm I'm just sensing that as much as, it, as important as it might seem to certain ministers and certain yeah. parts of the government I think every time you think that something bigger comes along, whether it's COVID the war in Ukraine or whatever, but I'm not, I'm not saying that they won't get around to it. I hope they do because I really, you know, we need to hope, but but I I just didn't see it when we had the opportunities just after the Brexit vote with the Mm -hmm. the years before COVID, I didn't see there wasn't people coming up and saying, knocking down our door and saying like, can we help you with sustainability Mm -hmm. policy or anything like that? And I, you know, I think it's probably moved a few rungs down the, parties list as a result of yeah. bigger bigger issues in the in the world
1: but i hope i'm remaining positive i'm hoping at some point it will connect back yeah um, me too. so i want to talk about your rock oyster festival <laughs> um it attracts thousands of people each year so what motivates you to hosting it and well you know, it's,
0: yeah i, I mean it's it's, it's. I mean, it's, it's a great product. So we've got amazing oyster beds down here in Cornwall. Um, it's also, you know, it's, it's a good time of the year to eat them, and, and it's, you know, so it's, you know, it, and it's, it's sort of built around the festival site. is built around the sort of dairy land that used to be, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> that used to be. So the farms nearby were dairy, dairy cow fields, and then the oyster farming became then their kind of. They diversified into oyster farming. So a really interesting story. So it's got a good sort of like base for like talking about food because it's like mm-hmm. a great story of, you know, dairy farming was really in a bit of a pickle with, you know, bovine TB and all this kind of stuff. And they then diversified to farming something else, which is farming something in the water right in front of them in this beautiful yeah. kind of area where all this, you have samphire beds and you, you pick all these amazing marsh herbs and you've got mm-hmm. like salt lamb down there. So it's a, it's a very foody kind of a, like location for it. Plus the fact that, you know it's basically this is this this is the closest product to our restaurant you know it's in the summer they basically put them on barges and they they're they're five minutes across the across the river and when you're eating in the restaurant if you sat on the conservatory or up in the bar you can see the oyster beds right there at low tide so it's it really Mm -hmm. connects to the business as well and um but then also, it's you know we've over the years the area has attracted like quite a few young people in 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 the in the sort of summer you know for mm. you know the you know Prince William and Harry used to holiday here when they were at, at school and university. It's been it's always been kind of a, a you know a bit like the Hamptons. It's got that kind of you know sort of summer vibe feel about it, and really just doing a, a music festival with some food just seeing like a really good idea and this is you know they've been doing it for about a decade on and off but it's just they've re they've revamped it um and really the food is a real big leader of it a, alongside the music and i think that's just a shift in in festivals and across the country if you look at alex james's big festival and and latitude and all these other things there's big chef demo tents there's big chef Food areas there's big like pop up, you know, street food markets, all this kind of stuff. Um, so it's it's just like, you know, it's kind of tuning into that. But then using the fact that we're in Cornwall, it's the summer and people love to come down. So, you know, those chefs come down and stay for, for a week and visit their suppliers and look at all the new things that are happening down in Cornwall. So it's kind of and it's just a nice, a nice vibe. You know, it's not like Glastonbury or anything. It's just like it's pretty chill. You can do a bit of stand-up, yoga, paddling, boarding, or whatever you want to do. A bit of wellness, a bit of some spa work, and then you can have some nice food and drinks and watch nice music.
1: Awesome. So you know, like, um, you're offering. as one of a part of the activities for the festival. You're offering foraging at the seaside <laughs> and the surrounding foliage. Um, are you finding that? The younger generation are more interested in this because it's a younger generation that are trying to, you know, are more conscious about sustainability and, you know, understanding the old ways of doing things in terms of food.
0: I think, yeah, I think, I mean, foraging has been around obviously forever, but in in a restaurant. So we've been using samafari and wild garlic in our restaurants for nearly 50 years because they just they're there and it's like you what you know wild garlic is so easy to spot it's, you can smell garlic and it's so you know and same with samphire which is down at the rock oyster site um and these things are just they're just products in our kind of in our calendar so you know whenever you know in in spring we'll have them on and in summer we'll have samphire on so I think the yeah kids well not your kids but the younger generation is definitely interested in exploring it. But also I think the older generations are as well because I think it kind of connects them to something that they probably did see when they were younger, but didn't like ever. You know, samphire would probably have been on people's plates, but they yeah. may have just you know it may jog a memory. So I think it's kind of across all age groups. But again, you know, it, with, with, with regards to sustainability of foraging, it's always a bit of a grey area because I think if everyone started to forage in the same areas you'd find there'd be like the blackberry picking wars and all this kind of stuff so you have to kind of know how to kind of propose it but I think what it shows is people are really interested in food want to find something that's different and I think that just shows the, the sort of depth of kind of knowledge and wanting to find out more about food.
1: No, definitely. I, I think one of the things I actually enjoy uh, enjoy reading about your festival is that you're offering everything. It's like a whole one hundred percent immersion into the Southwest. It's like yeah. you can do this and you can do that, which makes you slightly different in comparison to other food festivals that are just, you know, the music and the food. But I think it's really good that you're you're giving them a a sense of. Cornwall, a life in Cornwall. Yeah. I think that's um,
0: really really important. It's really it probably I should t- tell the team that, because that's a really good thing. We might start putting that in the marketing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well I want to get a free ticket and now just we go, yeah. <laughs> but um I think as well, like the festival in a sense is a good way, you know, you're you're becoming an advocate for Cornwall, you know, you're promoting everything it has to offer um and i think as well that also makes people want to go because you know there's so many things you know people go to Cornwall for the holidays but you're giving them something that they wouldn't necessarily do if you weren't doing a festival
0: yeah that, and, and, and also it's an opportunity to, to sort of see it all in one weekend and then maybe next year you might go oh like i remember seeing i met that that really cool oyster farmer from falmouth so i might go yeah. down to falmouth and then you know when i was talking to him he told me about this cool bar that's like an independent bar in falmouth like the chintz and <clears throat> symposium whatever and then you spend a couple of weekend weekends in falmouth and it's sort of like the thing with food tourism is one of the reasons i mean we were in albania once filming with rick and um albania had obviously come out of communism and and, and they would but they had, because they had started a bit late they were able to look at what kind of tourism they wanted and and the the government were really keen on food tourism and the reason they were really keen on food tourism is because food tourism in comparison to say dance music tourism dance music money comes in and the money just goes it filters out and it goes into people's private Mm -hmm. boats and jets and you know gets drunk get pissed up against the wall or whatever you want to say but food tourism is very um egalitarian you know the, you know you'll stay in a hotel you'll go and see a farmer you go to a farmer's market you'll buy some products you'll take some stuff home you know it kind of the money spreads around the economy a lot better mm-hmm. so I think with um with with the Rock Oyster Festival and with these kinds of things it's a way of sort of showcasing it all a bit like a I suppose if you want like it, it'd be like a, a, a you know a fair like an expo of Cornish great produce and then yes. you can then go off and explore it later at your own leisure
1: yeah definitely so i'm really on to my last question um are there any tasty surprises to look forward to and what's next for you
0: tasty surprises to look forward to what in rock oyster in general
1: in general maybe in not general. a lot of the
0: restaurants i think um <laughs> yeah i mean this summer we're doing a we're doing a summer of shellfish at, the, at the, again it's you know again it's the first summer we've sort of we're back to everything's open as normal everything's normal back to you know and and one of the things we used to do a lot is is our summer of shellfish so in all restaurants we just because in the summer it's when there's lots and lot the, the the boats can go out fishing all the local boats are, are out and they're operating so we want to give them as much money as we can so it's really about celebrating fish and shellfish but mainly shellfish this summer in all restaurants so every restaurant's going to have like a lobster on or a crab dish or something that just shouts um shellfish and this whole idea of summer and just you know cracking it open and like we're talking about freedom airs earlier on so that's like the big thing for us this summer we're looking forward to um and then in terms of new stuff i mean obviously the biggest i think the biggest trend in my industry which is fish and shellfish really is around kind of fish this idea of fish butchery? Um, a guy called Josh nylon from from Sydney, who I work with at Fat Duck, who is amazing. He's been doing all this aging fish and making, you know, hams and stuff out of and making things out of livers and all that. And I think there's definitely an element of whether or not we'll ever go as far as Josh does because he's a genius. But um, but definitely like using some bif- different bits of fish that have kind of bit under love you know the cheeks or the tongues or the you know the bones in the face and uh, you know like chicken wings you could do fish wings um uh, and you treat them in the same way you do like you know we did i had this great uh, fish wing with like um uh, like a fish sauce caramel in london recently and it was so delicious and you know the um That, like, um, Asian kind of countries have been doing this for a long, long time, um, you know, using every part of the fish. So it's something that we're going to be working on, I think, for for the next couple of years because food prices are going up, fish prices are going up. So if we could say to, you know, to the fishermen, look, can we keep us, you know, the cheeks or the i'm not i mean josh makes ice cream out of eyeballs and stuff like that which i think is, a, is probably a bit too a bit too far for us but that's i think the probably the biggest trend and i mean aging fish we have always done a bit of fish aging not like as long as meat, but definitely there is um there is something in you know things like dover where you can age for sort of a week or so and they just get a bit softer so there's a lot there i think which is going to be quite exciting in, in fish and you know people like um Tom, Tom Brown at Cornerstone, Nathan Outlaw, these kind of people will probably be pushing that envelope quite hard. We'll probably be more middle of the road and just be like, mm-hmm. you know, nice little gratin of, of skate cheeks or whatever. But yeah. but there's definitely stuff to look at in, in Fish and Shellfish for sure. I'm looking
1: forward to that. But So, Jack, thank you so much for joining me today. It's thank been you. an absolute pleasure having you. Thank, thank you, thank you, so, you
0: much. so much. Bye. Bye.